You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everyone, welcome to the 180th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Previously on the show, as y'all recall, we wrapped up our look at the action at the Second Battle of Manassas. And we also took a quick look at what happened at the subsequent clash at Chantilly, where the Federals lost two promising generals, Isaac Stevens and Phil Kearney. And now with this episode, we want to continue talking about what happened in the aftermath of Second Manassas. First of all, a couple of you asked us about the breakdown of casualties at the battle, which we were a little vague about. But that's because for the three days of the battle, it's a bit hard to pin down exact numbers. In his book, Return to Bull Run, John Hennessy mentions 3,000 dead and 15,000 wounded on the battlefield, and other sources cite total losses of 16,000 for the Federals and 9,200 for the Confederates. We did find a couple of sources that got a bit more specific. In David Eicher's book, The Longest Night, A Military History of the Civil War, he says that about 75,000 Federal soldiers took part in the campaign, while Lee fielded around 48,500 men. And then over the course of the campaign, the Federals lost 1,724 killed, 8,372 wounded, and a whopping 5,958 missing. Confederate losses were 1,481 killed, 7,627 wounded, and just 89 missing. It's worth noting that the Second Manassas Campaign was Robert E. Lee's first full campaign in command of the Army of Northern Virginia. Well, that is, if you consider the Seven Days as part of the Peninsula Campaign. And Lee, of course, had taken command in the midst of the Peninsula Campaign, after Joe Johnston was wounded at Seven Pines. But, at any rate, many have seen in the Second Manassas Campaign the most brilliant combination of strategy and tactics that Lee would ever achieve. Lee very quickly recognized the opportunity presented to him by McClellan's withdrawal from the peninsula, and Lee moved with all possible speed against John Pope. And Lee was always mindful of his immediate objective to clear Pope out of central Virginia before the Army of the Potomac joined him. After forcing Pope to abandon his line along the Rapidan River, Lee was careful and patient, watching for an opportunity to flank Pope and force him to abandon his line along the Rappahannock also. 
When on August 24th, the chance to flank Pope finally came, Lee came up with a plan of stunning audacity. He selected Stonewall Jackson, the general best suited for the job, to conduct a bold flank march around Pope's right. As you guys know, that flank march succeeded pretty much perfectly. Jackson marched his troops 54 miles in 36 hours into the rear of the Union Army. It was, arguably, the boldest maneuver of its kind during the war, and Stonewall executed it nearly flawlessly. After sacking and destroying the big federal supply depot at Manassas Junction, Stonewall then maneuvered carefully to ensure his own safety while waiting for Lee and Longstreet to join him. Once in battle, however, Jackson reverted once again to tactical mediocrity. His performance at Groveton on the evening of August 28th, despite a threefold advantage in numbers, was dismal. And his failure on the afternoon of the 30th to advance promptly on Longstreet's left allowed Pope to shift troops south of the turnpike into Longstreet's path. This was a stunning failure on Stonewall's part and was possibly the factor that spared Pope's army from total destruction that day. But, as John Hennessy points out, Stonewall's strategic accomplishments were sufficient to disperse the shadows cast upon his tactical ability. By his boldness and speed in executing the flanking march into Pope's rear, and his decision to withdraw from Manassas Junction to the old Bull Run battlefield, Stonewall was the one who made Robert E. Lee's victory at Second Manassas possible. Second Manassas arguably represented James Longstreet's most important contribution to any of Robert E. Lee's victories. His massive attack on August 30th was remarkable in both its scale and the speed with which it was launched. Problems of command and control and of terrain robbed the assault of much of its power, however. Rather than hitting Pope's vulnerable left with a single wrecking ball, Longstreet ended up pounding it with many sledgehammers delivered in succession. In the end, despite Longstreet's best effort, the Yankees' last-ditch defensive position at Henry Hill would hold. But when all was said and done, in three hours of violent fighting, Longstreet's wing lost over 4,000 men, more than Stonewall Jackson lost in three days. As for Robert E. Lee, once he arrived on the battlefield, he again demonstrated great patience. Lee decided to withhold Longstreet's attack on August 29th when it wasn't apparent that great advantage might be gained from it. But then, when the opportunity for counterattack came the next day, Lee reacted decisively. Longstreet's assault on Pope's left was the largest attack that Lee would launch during the war. It achieved impressive results, but that Pope escaped total destruction was undoubtedly a great disappointment to Lee, for once it started forward, he surely saw the attack on August 30th as a battle of annihilation. Nonetheless, on that day, Lee came as close as he ever would to destroying a Union army, and by September 1st, he had certainly gained a great deal when one looks at the campaign as a whole and all that he had accomplished since leaving Richmond to join Jackson against John Pope. Lee had failed to destroy Pope's army at Second Manassas, and the inconclusive fight at Chantilly in the midst of a summer thunderstorm allowed Pope to complete his retreat to the fortifications around Washington. But by any measure, Robert E. Lee had still won an amazing victory, 
and perhaps he could take satisfaction in knowing that John Pope had been suppressed. In any case, Lee's victories in the Seven Days and at Second Manassas had changed the momentum of the war in Virginia and shifted the scene of the fighting from the outskirts of Richmond north about 100 miles to the outskirts of Washington. Of equal importance, Lee's success had sent Confederate morale soaring both among the troops and on the southern home front, had strengthened the Confederates' case for foreign recognition, and had sown discouragement in the North. After learning of Pope's defeat, Abraham Lincoln told his secretary, John Hay, Well, John, we are whipped again. The Confederate victory at Second Manassas was primarily a triumph of maneuver and timing, aided greatly by Yankee bungling and mismanagement. Few officers in Pope's army emerged from the second consecutive Union disaster at Bull Run with enhanced reputations. Irvin McDowell, for one, committed one of the worst tactical errors of any Civil War battle when he ordered Reynolds' division off Chin Ridge just minutes before Longstreet's attack hit the Federal left. After that, only quick work by a half-dozen energetic officers and thousands of Union soldiers prevented outright disaster. While McDowell certainly came in for his share of criticism after the battle, John Pope sought to place blame for the debacle squarely on the shoulders of Fitzjohn Porter. By accusing Porter of outright disobedience, John Pope obviously hoped to deflect blame for the defeat away from his own grievous mistakes, and since Porter was George McClellan's friend and primary representative of the McClellan faction in Pope's army, he offered a perfect target when Pope sought a, sa a scapegoat. Fitzjohn Porter was also a convenient target for those in Washington who were infuriated that they just couldn't seem to rid themselves of George McClellan, and so in January 1863, Porter was court-martialed and found guilty of disobeying orders. He was cashiered from the army and, quote, forever disqualified from holding any office of trust or profit under the government of the United States, end quote. It would take Porter years of dogged effort to get his conviction overturned, and it only happened in 1886 when Grover Cleveland, the first Democrat to win the presidency since the Civil War, reversed the decision of the original court-martial and a special act of Congress reinstated Porter's commission. Notwithstanding McDowell's bungling and the whole Porter drama, and despite John Pope's best efforts to the contrary, none of the corps, division, or brigade commanders could be made to bear the ultimate responsibility for the defeat at Second Manassas. That responsibility belonged primarily to the Union High Command, to Pope, George McClellan, and Henry Halleck. For Halleck, the Second Manassas Campaign provided a rough introduction to the difficulties and demands that went along with the Office of General-in-Chief. His most significant decision came at the outset of the campaign when he ordered the Army of the Potomac to withdraw from the peninsula in early August. The effect of that movement, though, was unfortunate in that it handed the strategic initiative in Virginia to Robert E. Lee. And Lee, as we've seen, made the most of the opportunity to strike at John Pope before the Army of the Potomac fully arrived in northern Virginia. 
It has to be said that only the strongest of command personalities could have overcome the challenges associated with coordinating the activities of Pope's and McClellan's armies, and Halleck lacked that personality. His candid admissions of fatigue and extreme anxiety as the campaign unfolded were unproductive, to say the least. Halleck's floundering emboldened McClellan to proceed at his usual sloth-like pace and did nothing to inspire Pope's confidence. During the Second Manassas Campaign, Halleck did his job badly, and Abraham Lincoln, much to his regret, realized that bringing Halleck east and elevating him to general-in-chief had been a mistake. The president later told John Hay that Halleck, quote, broke down, nerve and pluck all gone, and has ever since evaded all responsibility. Lincoln concluded by saying that Halleck was, quote, little more than a first-rate clerk. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In all human history, there are few stories like that of ancient Egypt. On the banks of the Nile, these people created one of the most enduring and significant cultures. Their tale comes to life in the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore the tales of this amazing culture, from the legendary days of creation and the gods, all the way to Cleopatra, and everything in between. The History of Egypt podcast is written and produced by a trained Egyptologist. We go much deeper than your average documentary or magazine article to uncover tales of life, great endeavors, and the amazing arc of a mighty kingdom. The History of Egypt podcast is available on all podcasting platforms, apps, and websites. Come, visit Ancient Egypt, and experience a legendary culture. In Return to Bull Run, John Hennessy points out that George McClellan had control of one of the Second Manassas campaign's most important variables, that is, how long it would take for his Army of the Potomac to join Pope's Army of Virginia. Stated another way, Little Mac would determine how long Robert E. Lee's window of opportunity to strike at Pope remained open. Previously on the podcast, we talked about the fact that McClellan vehemently objected to the decision to withdraw his army from the peninsula, 
even though he had been soundly thrashed by Lee during the seven days, and subsequently had been sitting at Harrison's landing, displaying zero initiative. We also talked about Little Mac's philosophical differences with Pope and the Lincoln administration over the transition that was taking place to hard war. And so even before his army started to withdraw from the peninsula, McClellan viewed Pope as a dangerous rival, and then once the Army of the Potomac actually started to arrive in northern Virginia, there was the uncertainty over just who would command the combined Union armies. But little Mac, reading the handwriting on the wall, suspected it wouldn't be him, and this only increased his antagonism toward Pope. McClellan's plotting evacuation of the peninsula gave Robert E. Lee precious additional days to operate against Pope. Later, from his headquarters at Alexandria, across the river from Washington, when the emerging crisis associated with Lee's maneuvering required a bold response and a sense of urgency, Little Mac instead sought every excuse not to send troops to Pope's aid. McClellan's correspondence during this entire time can only be characterized as despicable, and he put his actions in the worst possible light, and reflected poorly on anyone associated with him, especially Fitzjohn Porter. Little Mac's candid letters to his wife and his grumpy exchanges with Henry Halleck chronicle his bitterness and arrogance and also underscore his shocking unwillingness to support a fellow general whose army was in peril. As we said near the end of the last episode, McClellan did regain command at the campaign's end. He did so even though Abraham Lincoln characterized Little Mac's behavior as, quote, shocking and, quote, atrocious. But the beleaguered president felt Little Mac was the only man available who could meet the emergency. Lincoln told John Hay that, quote, McClellan has acted badly in this matter, but we must use the tools we have. Both Henry Halleck and George McClellan contributed to the Union failure in Northern Virginia in August 1862. But as fun as it is to throw darts at Halleck and take swings at the McClellan pinata, still it has to be admitted that the primary architect of the calamity at Second Manassas was John Pope. With many forces beyond Pope's control working against his success after he was placed in command of the Army of Virginia, the fact remains that he had at his disposal sufficient men and resources not just to parry the Confederates he faced, but to defeat them. John Hennessy concludes, quote, that John Pope lost this campaign to R.E. Lee was the fault, primarily, of John Pope. Pope can't be faulted for falling back from the Rapidan, but once he was established behind the Rappahannock, he began to make a series of ultimately fatal mistakes. He failed to use his cavalry properly to keep track of enemy movements. He failed to properly interpret the information he did receive about enemy movements, and he failed for 36 hours to respond to Stonewall Jackson's march. Pope failed utterly to recognize the possibilities offered by sending a strong force to block the enemy's passage through the Bull Run Mountains. Then, having allowed Jackson to slip into his rear, 
Pope's subsequent pursuit of Stonewall amounted to a series of poorly managed lunges across the countryside rather than a systematic hunt. And then having finally found Stonewall on the edge of the old Bull Run battlefield, Pope made his most important error of the campaign by fighting a battle at all. As we mentioned previously on the podcast, Pope could have easily achieved his campaign objective, that is, the uniting of the two Union armies, by simply falling back to the prepared positions around Centerville, where the last units from the Army of the Potomac would have joined him in short order, and the combined Union armies could have then advanced to do battle with Robert E. Lee. But instead, Pope chose to fight an unnecessary battle, He yielded to poor judgment and to his own ego, which would not allow him to simply withdraw from the battlefield. In doing so, he nearly destroyed his army. At Second Manassas, Pope demonstrated such an appalling lack of ability that not even 25,000 additional troops from Franklin's and Sumner's Corps might have made a difference in the battle's outcome. Pope's most spectacular failure was his wishful insistence that even after Longstreet's wing of the Confederate army arrived on the scene, the rebels were retreating. He doggedly persisted in this belief, despite all evidence to the contrary. Coupled with his stubborn unwillingness to accept warnings about the danger that lurked opposite his left, Pope's complete misreading of Lee's intentions led directly to a second Union defeat at Bull Run. The campaign ruined John Pope's professional reputation. That he tried to retrieve it by casting Fitzjohn Porter as a scapegoat only damaged his reputation more among those in the know in the Army. Although 20 more years of military service lay in his future, Pope would be remembered mostly for the disaster that befell Union forces in Northern Virginia during his 74 days in command. On September 6th, Pope received orders to, quote, proceed immediately, end quote, to Minnesota to put down the recent Sioux uprising, and we'll be talking about that in some future members' episodes. But after tidying up a few details, not the least of which was seeing to it that Porter would be hauled before a court-martial, Pope boarded a train for the Northwest, acutely aware that his new assignment was really military exile. On his journey to Minnesota, he arrived in his home state of Illinois on September 12th and stayed in a hotel in Chicago. As word of his presence spread, a friendly crowd began to assemble outside his window until more than 5,000 people had gathered. The people yelled for Pope, and finally he appeared. He then told the crowd, My friends, I am glad to see you tonight. I am glad to be back to breathe again the pure air of the state of Illinois. It has been for many years my home, and I am glad to return to it. God Almighty only knows how sorry I am I ever left it. As the Union forces streamed back toward Washington, word of Pope's disaster spread through the capital and then across the north. On September 1st, the Washington bureau chief of the New York Tribune admitted, quote, For the first time, I believe it possible that Washington may be taken, end quote. Newspapers of various political stripes agreed that, quote, The country is in extreme peril, end quote. The alarm that spread across the northern home front was bad enough, 
But the demoralization in both the Army of Virginia and the Army of the Potomac was worse. A New Hampshire captain whose regiment had lost heavily at Second Manassas declared that, quote, The whole army is disgusted. You need not be surprised if further success falls to the rebels with astonishing rapidity. End quote. Washington Roebling, a New Jersey officer and future builder of the Brooklyn Bridge, wrote of how, quote, Our men are sick, are sick of the war. They fight without aim and without enthusiasm. They have no confidence in their leaders. End quote. No one was more aware of the Army's demoralization in the wake of the debacle at Second Manassas than Abraham Lincoln, and as Commander-in-Chief, his was the responsibility of doing something about it. That George McClellan was the only general available with the chance of bailing the Union out of the present crisis rankled nearly everyone connected with the Lincoln administration, including the President and his Cabinet and Henry Halleck. For days, whispers of treason associated with Little Mac's actions and attitude had crept through the halls of Congress and through the Cabinet's offices. On August 28th, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, who was McClellan's bitterest enemy in the administration, had asked Halleck for an accounting of Little Mac's conduct. Halleck conceded that McClellan's response to the emergency was not what, quote, the national safety, in my opinion, required, end quote. A newspaper reporter who spoke with Lincoln on August 30th had never seen the president so, quote, wrathful toward anyone as he was toward McClellan. According to John Hay, Lincoln seemed to think that Little Mac's willingness to see Pope defeated made him, quote, a little crazy. But in the end, the president agreed with Hay that, quote, Envy, jealousy, and spite are probably a better explanation. Lincoln received plenty of advice on what to do about the matter. Stanton wanted McClellan court-martialed. Secretary of the Treasury Sam and Chase said Little Mac ought to be shot. Four members of the cabinet signed a memorandum urging the president to dismiss McClellan. Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells didn't sign it, but agreed with the document's sentiments. So did Lincoln, but he knew that Pope had to go, and that most of the troops had confidence in no one except McClellan to lead them. On the morning of September 2nd, therefore, Abraham Lincoln made one of the most difficult decisions of his presidency, one that displayed his pragmatism, but also one that required all of his humility. That morning, he and Halleck paid an unannounced visit to McClellan. Under the circumstances, the president saw no alternative to McClellan as commander of the merged armies, and so Lincoln asked McClellan to take command of all the Union forces as they retreated into the Washington defenses, Pope's army as well as his own troops from the Army of the Potomac. As McClellan remembered it, Lincoln, quote, asked me if I would, and as a favor to him, resume command and do the best that could be done, end quote. Little Mac, of course, accepted, and he took pains to note he did so, quote, without making any conditions, whatever. McClellan wrote to his wife to tell her the joyous news, saying, quote, Again, I have been called upon to save the country. My enemies are crushed, silent, and disarmed, end quote. And, by enemies, he meant not the Confederates, but meant Stanton, Chase, and radical Republicans in Congress. 
At any rate, he accepted the president's offer, he told his wife, because, quote, under the circumstances, no one else could save the country, end quote. For his part, Abraham Lincoln returned to the White House on September 2nd and informed the cabinet of his decision. Stanton and Chase strenuously protested Lincoln's action. Chase said, quote, it would prove a national calamity. Two cabinet members who kept diaries reported that during the meeting, Lincoln was, quote, extremely distressed. Gideon Wells wrote that, quote, there was a more disturbed and desponding feeling than I ever witnessed in council. Lincoln admitted that with regard to McClellan's actions, there appeared to be, quote, a design, a purpose in breaking down Pope without regard to the consequences to the country, end quote. The president agreed that this was shocking to know, but insisted that McClellan was the only one who could, quote, reorganize the army and bring it out of the chaos, end quote. And the extraordinary response of soldiers to McClellan's resumption of command confirmed Lincoln's judgment. On the afternoon of September 2nd, Little Mac put on his dress uniform, strapped on his yellow sash and finest sword, and rode out on his magnificent bay, Dan Webster, to meet the retreating armies. Soon, the first of Pope's men appeared, coming down the road. In the midst of this melancholy procession rode John Pope and Irvin McDowell. The two generals exchanged what must have been pained greetings with McClellan, and Little Mac gave brief instructions for troop dispositions. Before Pope departed, John Hatch, who bore a grudge against Pope for removing him from command of a cavalry brigade in early August, now hurried to announce McClellan's restoration. In a voice loud enough for Pope to hear, Hatch shouted, Boys, McClellan is back in command of the army again. Three cheers! As the men cheered the news, word quickly spread, running back the road like lightning, and many soldiers then and later described what happened next. One said, quote, From extreme sadness we passed in a twinkling to a delirium of delight. A deliverer had come. Men threw their caps high in the air and danced and frolicked like schoolboys. Another man wrote of how, quote, Way off in the distance, as he passed the different corps, we could hear them cheer him. The effect of this man's presence was electrical and too wonderful to make it worthwhile attempting to give a reason for it. End quote. The Washington correspondent for the Chicago Tribune, who was no fan of Little Mac, witnessed this event. He wrote, quote, I have disbelieved the reports of the Army's affection for McClellan, being entirely unable to account for the phenomenon. I cannot account for it to my satisfaction now, but I accept it as fact. End quote. Historians have also found it difficult to explain McClellan's continuing popularity here with his soldiers, especially considering his shameful performance during the Seven Days' Battles. But there was no denying that, in the wake of Second Manassas, for most of the rank-and-file soldiers, as well as for many of the officers in the army, McClellan was their George, and they were his men. In any event, after Second Manassas, George McClellan did quickly bring order out of chaos and lick the troops into shape, as Lincoln hoped he would. 
Within a few days, Little Mac had reorganized and integrated the different armies and corps into a reasonably united force, but most importantly, he got the army ready to fight again. Which was a good thing, because on September 4th, the first units of Lee's Army of Northern Virginia began crossing the Potomac River into Maryland looking for a fight. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Quartermaster, Montgomery C. Miggs, Lincoln's General, Master Builder of the Union Army, by Robert O'Hara, Jr. Yep, um, this is another book we received recently from Simon & Schuster, and we've been quite taken with it. Miggs was Quartermaster General of the Union Army during the Civil War, and as far as we know, this biography is one of very few books devoted to looking at the life of one of the major architects of the Union's victory. James McPherson has called Miggs, quote, the unsung hero of Northern victory. So that's The Quartermaster, Montgomery C. Miggs, by Robert O'Hara, Jr., Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And we thank Simon & Schuster for that book. We also want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Hugh, Gerbs, and Rich. Just yesterday, we released members episode number 48, in which we looked at DuPont's attack on Charleston in April 1863 with his ironclads. And with that, I think we're done with Charleston for a while, although next month we'll continue in the naval vein, uh, but out west on the Mississippi River, as we look at the brief but dramatic career of the rebel ironclad CSS Arkansas in the summer of 1862. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time when we begin our march toward Antietam. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.